Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. This is your host, Stephen Peinecker, and I want to welcome somebody I'm very excited to have on our program. Now, as you all know, during the summer season, I'm doing like Up and Comers Thursday, where I introduce new people who are uh, people who are scholars or different podcasters uh, that perhaps you haven't heard of. And this is one of them, uh, Rebecca Jansen. Uh, welcome to my program. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. So we met at the Mormon History Association in June. And I just remember uh, very clearly meeting you. I met a lot of people, but we were, I was with Rick Bennett and a few other people and they were just kind of conversing and you and I kind of just started engaging. And like, oh, we're both outsiders. You know, I'm the evangelical interloper and you're the Mennonite experiencing uh, this community. And uh, how did that go for you? What was your experience like? with the Mormon History Association? Well, I had an absolutely fantastic time. Um, it was the first time I had been part of something about Mormons um, exclusively. And it was a chance for me to meet so many scholars that I really admire. I really liked how the tone was set. Um, the director, Barbara Jones Brown, um, organized with the team of the folks who organize a conference um, a newcomer's breakfast to explain how this conference both relates to people in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, other expressions of Mormonism, and how a scholarly understanding of that history can help people in their faith, but also that it's not an exclusively faith-based conference. And I've been in other types of um, conferences like that that relate to Mennonites, and I really, really liked how they organized it and um, that kind of set the tone. I also really liked how they broke down what an academic conference is for people who might not have been to one before, who might have been graduate students or people who are just interested in Mormon history um, so they can understand some of the reasons how people present the way they do, why they do, and to feel like they could really be part of it. Um, it was definitely the first conference and probably the only conference I'll ever go to where I can watch people um, doing ski jumps in the middle of summer into a diving pool. Um, that was one of the really cool things about the meal times that were outside that you got to have that. Yeah, that, that was so cool. Uh, that was like, a, like probably like the Olympic uh, pavilion mm -hmm. for the, yeah. uh, for the winter Olympics is where we did. It was kind of as a outdoor indoor event and to accommodate the COVID situation. And, and Barbara, you know, with the MHA executive director, wonderful. She was so accommodating. And so um, I, I was in contact with her frequently before I attended. And she made sure that I, you know, everything was lined up for me. She was just a wonderful, wonderful person, a wonderful host. And I really am so grateful about this. And so that's our background. You and I, we, 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 we kind of just make our way to this conference and we get exposed to this awesome group of people. And they made us feel like uh, we're, we're strangers, but they showed kindness to the stranger, which I always tell people that's a Christ-like attribute. And I always appreciate that. So let's give, I just want to give an introduction here because Rebecca has a very interesting story to tell and a very interesting book. Uh, the name of the book is called Liminal Sovereignty, uh, Mennonites and Mormons in Mexican Culture. Rebecca is an associate professor of Spanish and comparative literature at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. She is a scholar of gender, disability, and religious studies in Mexican literature and culture whose research focuses on excluded populations in Mexico. 
Her first book, The National Body in Mexican Literature, Collective Challenges to Biopolitical Control, explored images of disability and illness in 20th century texts. Her second book, Liminal Sovereignty, Mennonites and Mormons in, in Mexican Culture, focused on religious minorities. Unholy Trinity, State, Church, and Film in Mexico, uh, deals with film and religion in Mexico. Uh, that book is forthcoming. And uh, then her next is Unlawful Violence, Law and Cultural Production in 20th Century Mexico. That is coming out in 2022. Um, it, it's about human rights, law, and literature. <clears throat> the Plett Foundation, the Kreider Fellowship at Elizabethtown College, and the C. Henry Smith Peace Trust, and the Newberry... Newberry Library in Chicago have supported her research. It was so cool reading your bio because I'm born and raised from just outside of Chicago and every year uh, the Newberry Library would have a um, used book fair. And so I, part of my collection of books I know I have bought as Mormon related materials there. So they added to my collection. So thank you for reminding me. I totally forgot I used to do that. So uh, again, welcome to the program. I'm so excited about this. So let's just jump into this thing. So what made you decide, well, before we get into the book, actually, we need to talk about something really important and that is your background uh, and also your faith uh, that you've been raised in, which uh, you are a Mennonite. So let's just explore that a little bit. For sure. So, um... I came to the book through my own academic study about Mexico and my graduate work that focused on Mexico. And the whole time I was studying, I knew um, about Mexican literature written by famous Mexican authors. I knew that I had these relatives who lived in Mexico, um, cousins of my dad, his aunts and uncles who had migrated there from Western Canada in between the 1920s and 1940s. and it was like, how did these two things fit together? Um, those relatives of mine belong to a variety of different churches, um, but most of them would be distinct in terms of dress. So they're not the same as Amish and Old Order Mennonite people that we see here in the United States, but similar idea of women wearing long skirts, head coverings, and men also, of course, depending on the church that they're part of, will also have some distinctions in dress. But the church that I grew up in, um, I'm from Ottawa in Canada. So I'm from um, a mid-sized city. Uh, and the Mennonite church that I grew up in is now part of Mennonite Church Canada, which is um, a sister denomination of Mennonite Church USA, a denomination of probably about 100,000 people. You can look up their statistics on the internet to find out more information. Um, this is one of many Mennonite groups in Canada and the United States. And Mennonites are distinct from Mormons in that they're kind of more conference-based structure. And so there can be a lot of disagreement um, within a church, within churches that are in a conference together and within a denomination as a whole. So I would say that my own experience only reflects what I think, Mennonites are big on consensus, but also interpreting the Bible for your own um, edification and beliefs. So there's a always a compromise between one's beliefs and the importance of living in a community with other people. Um, Mennonites started in the Reformation in the 16th century in Europe. And there were two kind of parallel movements of people who were baptizing each other because they believed 
that you should be baptized upon adult confession of faith. That's something that um, Mennonites have in common with a lot of evangelical and other Protestant groups today. Um, and at that time, it was um, the not, I don't believe the first group, I think there were some several centuries earlier in Europe as well, that adopted this type of baptism and idea of separation from the world, which is something that you might also be familiar with if you're Mormon or if you're evangelical. And Mennonites interpret that in different ways depending on the kind of Mennonite that you are. So um, one thing that's important to most Mennonites is pacifism and non-resistance. So typically um, not performing military service and often performing alternative service when there's a draft. Um, one of my great grandfathers, for example, was a medic in World War I. Um, and the rest of, and that kind of thing was common. Um, also working in mental health facilities in World War II, forestry, hmm. along with Quakers, Amish, and people who for reasons of conscience didn't want to serve in military service. Um, but Mennonites have a lot of different views on what being a pacifist or what being non-resistant looks like. And um, that is what it looked like 50 years ago, typically. And today, um, some Mennonites would be prison abolitionists, some Mennonites um, would be police officers, and some Mennonites um, probably are like most people and don't think too deeply about their beliefs. They just try and live their life as a good person. And as a Mennonite, it's defined in community with other people um, from your church. Mennonites are like a couple of other religious groups in another way, which is that there's a strong ethnic connection. Um, I would say a parallel denomination, we have the Christian Reformed Church, um, which has a strong connection to Dutch immigrants, um, as well as Mormons who are based in Utah, where of, I think the Mormons are a really good parallel because there's people who can trace their ancestors back to Genealogically, Mennonites are not as expert as Mormons, of course, because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I think, really has a monopoly on genealogical history. Um, but uh, the idea that I can trace, for example, my background um, to what's now Ukraine, and prior to that to Poland, and then we assume to what was the Netherlands, what's now the Netherlands and Belgium, um, and my ancestors kept moving seeking opportunities to avoid military service and to live in community, speak their own language, have their own schools, um, essentially kind of a subgroup within a larger country. And other Mennonites who would be having roots in Amish or, old, or maybe some parallels with Amish people or older Mennonites would trace their roots from Switzerland and Southern Germany and then direct immigration to the United States um, when William Penn invited people like Quakers and Mennonites to settle the land that he thought was his. And um, Mennonites today, in fact, people who trace their roots to either of those migration patterns are in a minority. That would be the parallel um, with Mormons, where people who can trace their roots to the pioneers who crossed the United States globally might be in a minority, but might be better connected to people with power in the denomination. Um, and 
there's a discussion among Mennonites that is, I believe, paralleled in Mormon studies that what does it mean to be Mennonite? Do you have to be a member of a church? Um, I joined the church that I grew up in upon confession of faith and baptism in high school, but there's no Mennonites where I live. I go to a Zoom Mennonite church now because of COVID, um, which is lovely. It's in North Carolina. And so I could theoretically drive there, but in my opinion, three hours is awfully far. So Zoom is working nicely. Um, and there's some folks in Charlotte who have been Zooming in, which is about an hour and a half away from where I live. So I've had the opportunity to meet with them and spend time in person, which I think is so much better. Um, this is another strange parallel between Mennonites and Mormons, although Mormons really are everywhere in the world. Um, there's some specific parts of the world where they're more concentrated. So we can think about states like Utah, Idaho, kind of the Mormon corridor. Um, Mennonites concentrated in places like Holmes County, Ohio, Elkhart County, Indiana, uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Sarasota, Florida, some parts of Kansas and Nebraska, Oklahoma and Texas. Um, and if you live in any of these places, you will certainly have seen people who are visibly Mennonite or Amish. Um, but if you live elsewhere, you could also have seen a person who's Mennonite, who's like me, who grew up with the idea of being different from the world, not in terms of dress, but in terms of actions. And that is my background yeah. um, and how I came to this study, I had the opportunity in my graduate studies and in my first few years of teaching, I worked at Bluffton University, a Mennonite college in Ohio, um, to go to conferences where I met people who were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they told me that they had family who lived near where my relatives, who were part of more conservative Mennonite groups, were living and introduced me to people um, some people had me in their homes. I was able to stay with them. So absolutely the Mormon welcome through people I met academically led me into a new research project. And it has just been such an interesting experience to get to know people in a deep way who are willing to share about their life, their history, their faith. It's been really cool. You know, it is. And, and I just, there's a lot to unpack here because it's so fascinating. Uh, you mentioned the Christian Reformed Church. That is my uh, heritage. That's my church heritage. Uh, my family actually in the 60s before I was born got into the charismatic movement. And so now we're, uh, some of my family would consider themselves charismatic Calvinists and stuff like that. So I thought, yeah, it's very interesting you brought that particular church up. But it's also interesting because um, my parents bought a second home in Bradenton, Florida, which is near Sarasota. And it's in a Christian community that was founded by a former bishop, uh, a former Mennonite bishop who actually got involved in the Pentecostal movement in the 1950s. And so every year we have Amish and Mennonites uh, attending conferences at our facility. So I have uh, engagement with Mennonites. And this is, uh, we have some friends who are from the Shenandoah Valley. Um, and they were, were called, I think, Black Bumper um, Mennonites because they could drive cars, but the chrome was too showy. So they had to paint the chrome over the chrome with black paint. Uh, have you had encounters with those kinds of Mennonites as well? Yeah, 
I had an opportunity to spend a semester at Elizabethtown College doing research. If any of the people listening or watching to this are interested in learning more about Mennonites, um, John Crabill, who is an emeritus professor from Elizabethtown, and Steve Nolt um, have written all kinds of things about every kind of Amish and Mennonite person. And in there's some that are more academic kind of tomes and others that are a really good introduction for um, people who just, you know, see people with slightly unusual looking cars or just a little bit different clothes. Um, and Don Crable took me and the archivist at Elizabethtown College to this library in rural Pennsylvania that caters exclusively, well, not exclusively, I went there, um, to old order people. So people who take horse and buggy there, there's a computer that they can use that's um, provided, I think, like there are in public libraries um, by tax money and also really culturally sensitive information like, oh, you want to learn more about Mennonites? Here's someone from your tradition who is self-taught as a historian, but who can, you can talk to about it, you can do research in the archives, but in a way that won't make you feel like you're stepping away from your faith, like going to a university might feel. Um, so really, really neat people and one of the staff people in this office that researches Anabaptism and Pietism um, at Elizabethtown College is part of the Old Order Mennonite Church. And this was the first Old Order Mennonite that I had met. And he actually converted to the tradition, which is extremely unusual, um, but a really fine man um, at Silverge and willing to be open about you know, just like, how do you live your life like this? It's so different than my life. Like, I've always had a car. Or if I haven't had a car, I've lived in a city where we had public transit, so it wasn't necessary, which is completely unlike living in a rural area without a car or where you can only buy kind of like three models of a car. Um, just fascinating people and really, really committed to their community above all else. Um, and so if your leader says, well, that's the kind of car you drive, then that's the kind of car you drive to keep you remembering what's important and carefully monitoring the interaction with technology, which I think all of us would do well to follow that advice. Um, I obviously would use more technology than they would, but really thinking about how we use it and why we use it, I think is not a bad thing. I think so too. I think that's that's so true. I think this world is getting so it's moving along so quickly and there are moments where we need to take moments of respite and to uh, contemplate uh, our place in the world the universe and also what role technology plays and so uh, and I also like the peace aspect of the Mennonite church I think it's an honorable position within Christianity that I wish more churches would also embrace you know and all those things so I think I think the Mennonite tradition is not my tradition but I think it's definitely one that I honor and uh, find to be a, a truly fascinating thing. Now, well, we've been talking a lot about Mennonites, but I want the, our audience to, you know, hear a little bit about uh, this background. So, and this is kind of where I want to lead to now. So you, you write this book and it's, and let me ask you, uh, were you originally going to have this about Mennonites and Mormons in Mexican culture, or was it originally going to be Mennonites in Mexican culture? Tell me what, what brought in the Mormon aspect to this story. I had initially thought about writing an essay about Mennonites and that was going to be it. Um, the essay 
I published it in the Arizona Journal of Hispanic Cultural Studies. It later became the fifth chapter of this book about the movie Silent Light um, by Carlos Regadas and the corpse photographs, like the photographs of people who are laid out in their homes um, before burial. And then it was really meeting these people, learning about Mormons and thinking that I could do a project that might compare several religious minorities in Mexico um, or linguistic minorities in Mexico. So I did some research um, about Jewish immigration to Mexico, which uh, can trace its roots to colonization. Um, so to the 15th and 16th centuries, but I was thinking more in terms of um, 20th century migration as it's a similar time period. But Jewish people who immigrated from Europe to Mexico primarily immigrated to cities. And um, that was quite a bit different than the Mennonites and Mormons who immigrated to rural Mexico and who were involved in like agri agriculture. And then if they were involved in business, particularly at the beginning, it was an agriculture related, so a really confined thing. Um, and then Jewish people, um, super, super, super fascinating history in Mexico, but totally um, not similar enough to include in the same study. I also looked at this other group, uh, a linguistic minority from uh, near Venice in Italy, who are also a group of people who's managed to preserve their own language. Um, but again, so they're rural people, so similar to Mennonites and Mormons in that way, um, and kind of the same like agriculture beginnings and involved in that kind of business. But their religion, they're Catholic, so were able to integrate into Mexico in that way, and so also didn't quite fit. Um, they're like, well, there's some similarities here that are really interesting, but not quite the same story of a really strong religious identity and being in part of Mexico that the Mexican government um, hasn't really focused on that much, which is why they let these people with unusual religious beliefs immigrate there in the first place. Um, so that is how I landed on Mennonites and Mormons. And as I studied both groups, it's clear that theologically very different, um, but a lot of the ways that they live their lives are quite similar. So family, very important. For Mormons, I think it's theologically important, you know, Mormon viewers, you will know this better than I do, but um, because of what people believe about life after death, for Mennonites, um, I think it's like a subset of the communal emphasis and the idea for more conservative Mennonites, like the plain dressing folks, um, that you don't get to heaven because you're saved, you get to heaven because your community is living right with God, and so then you might all get to heaven. But it's not an assurance situation, and so that means that your communal norms and your familial norms are extremely important. Um, and so that parallel, I think, means that they live their lives in similar ways, although Mormons, um, particularly members of the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, believe so strongly in education and the Mennonites who immigrated to Mexico migrated there specifically because they didn't want compulsory public education. So there are still quite strong differences between the two groups. Yeah, so, um, you know, if we, with the history, you know, of course, uh, the Mormons uh, started settling and colonizing in Mexico in, in the 19th century, in the 1800s. Uh, I think around 1883 or so is when they started migrating to Mexico. And, uh, 
And then of course they had, so they, and, and I believe the Mennonites started coming around the 1920s. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. And now of course the Mormons was interesting because they established colonies, but then um, because of the revolution and Pancho Villa and all that, then many of them fled around 1912 back to Utah and, and the Intermountain West. And then some then made their way back. The Mennonites didn't experience that aspect. They experienced that world after post-revolutionary. Um, one of the things that you talked about was just the uh, idea that Mennonites and Mormons had to uh, be, they were given like a special place in the, in the community, but they were given the special exemptions of liminal sovereignty, right? So they had a degree of sovereignty in their communities. But the, you, you start off with how they had to register, they had to carry ID cards with around and, the, and, and also the, and how the, that kind of kept them separate. They were, well, just kind of explain the relationship with the Mexican government and the Mennonites and Mormon uh, communities. So when the Mormons first settle in Mexico, they're migrating there because they want to continue to have polygamous families. Um, this is the same time that other Mormons migrate to Canada's Northwest Territories, now Alberta. And they don't negotiate formally about family structure, but they do sign an agreement that says you can have families how you would like them to be, um, which means that the Mexican government is effectively not going to prosecute anyone um, for violating laws around bigamy. And there's early agreements that um, I talk about in the book that say that people can, um, people that Mormons are allowed to kind of issue their own passports for members of their community. After the revolution, they're no longer able to do that. Um, but they are able to have their own schools um, at a time that the Mexican government had mandatory public education for everyone and was actively closing Catholic private schools that were a way that most of Mexico's elites had been educated and in fact were the um, primary type of education that was available to anyone. And the school that um, was run by the church in Colonia Juarez, the Juarez State Academy, now Academia Juarez, was able to continue teaching people. Um, and the Mennonites who settled after the revolution with the same public education edict also were able to set up their own private religious schools in German. Um, at that, the Mormons were teaching in English because they were strongly connected to Utah at that time. Um, and the Mennonites were teaching in high German. The Mennonites speak low German, which is more similar to Dutch. Um, but it's curious that in both cases, these religious minorities were allowed to educate their young people in the way that they wanted, which of course has the end goal of keeping people within the religious community. And Mennonites were also able to negotiate about military service um, and, ex and an exemption from that. Earlier, Mormons had also negotiated some type of exemption for military service, not because they were pacifist, but I believe because of their ongoing connections to the United States, um, because we know that many church members uh, serve in the armed forces and have done so um, for quite some time. And so it's interesting how these groups are able to negotiate some exceptions. And then there is an imposition of an ID document that would be similar to a green card here in the United States. 
um, that has your picture and information about you saying that you're a foreigner registered to be present in Mexico. This was the type of document used between 1926 and 1951. Um, and what I talk about in the book is all of the ways that um, these people who don't speak the language very well um, and certainly have a much more American style of dress and I'm assuming other um, intangible markers of culture, you know, like facial expressions, um, how they interact with their families, all of that is defined by where we come from. Um, and then they have to go and register themselves with these bureaucrats and the bureaucrats are probably like, what the heck, who are you? You're not our typical immigrants um, who are usually in cities. Um, many of them are from Europe or other countries in the Americas, not a group of people who immigrated specifically to maintain their religion. Um, and I really have to wonder what the bureaucrats were thinking. Um, sometimes they gave people qualities, like physical qualities that I could not discern from the photographs. Um, sometimes we saw that people had more than one document that was archived. And so you could see how the effects of the Great Depression in the 1930s um, were really, really difficult for people. And it's also interesting, I could do this more from a Mennonite perspective, but I looked at my own relatives. My great-grandmother immigrated um, along with five of my great aunts and uncles. And so I looked for them and I found them and then I started looking for other people I know who definitely lived in Mexico at that time, definitely were not Mexican citizens. They were not there. It could be an archival failing. It could be that these people who were very suspicious of the government did not want to go and get registered. I also looked for some folks, some Mormon friends relatives in Mexico and found some of them, but not all of them. And so I suspect that there might have been something similar at play because um, particularly at that time, Mormons immigrated to escape a government that was persecuting them. There's a logical extension to that, which is continuing to be suspicious of the government. Um, and so it's interesting to see, like the government was willing to negotiate with these people and some people appeared to be willing to present themselves and get some very inaccurate um, <laughs> descriptions of themselves put in a piece of paper registered and other people were not. Um, and to see how this tension in the community and with the overarching power in the country continues to evolve over the 20th century and until the present. Um, that leads into what I talk about, about land claims. Well, just, before, just before we get into that, I just, I yeah. just want to point out. So what I liked what you did was you uh, had various uh, pictures of these ID cards that were um, uh, that you went through. And what I liked was you, you told uh, you use that ID card to tell a story. It was very creative the way that you did that. I look at uh, the very first one, um, Alina Farnsworth, uh, I'm, I'm not going to try E. Martuaneo Baker or whatever, that's terrible. Um, I look at this beautiful picture, this picture of a, a beautiful strength. I, I, I just see something uh, very uh, noble and uh, very strong, like this is somebody that 
would, would have been an interesting person to engage. And I'm glad you introduced her to the audience. This is something that I tried to do throughout the book is bring documents to light. There are some historians who've done this um, in a really compelling way from colonial documents where there's so little information. Um, as soon as you stop thinking about the people who hold the most power, so like a president or um, in Latin America, maybe a vice regal representative, so a representative of the Spanish king or emperor, um, then there's like five words written about a person. And how can you construct what this person's life would be like? Because that's what most people's lives are. We're not ultimately that important, but we're important to our families, to our friends, to our communities. And so using what I've seen historians do in really excellent ways to try and understand like, what would these people's lives have been like? And how can we use the historical record, use what other scholars have shown us to be true and use stories that people told me about their grandparents or shared um, more family history types of books like memoirs and to try and figure out what was really going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I appreciate that aspect of your storytelling. I found it to be very well done. Um, so yeah, so let's go to land. Whose land is it, mm -hmm. right? land reform and the issue of the land who it belongs to and the uh, tenacious uh, the tenuous uh, relationship between uh, groups of some aboriginal or pe peasant people uh, you know they had some land claims and then uh, the land claims by the colonizers and then ultimately the interaction with those groups via the government uh, tell us a little bit about that yeah i will backtrack a little sure, bit sure. Um, because how land claims work in Mexico is quite different than in the United States or Canada, where um, it's primarily based on treaties between indigenous leaders and European or um, American leaders. In Canada, it's always with Europeans because um, Canada is not a republic, and that's the context I'm the most familiar with, but it's always from a treaty. Um, whereas in Mexico, that's not the case. So the case that I'm looking at in this book is after the revolution, the Mexican government says the land belongs to the nation. Um, so in the years after the first constitution, which is in 1917, there is incredible instability in Mexico and different presidents take this in different directions um, into what ultimately is a social democracy, but with a single party dictatorship, but um, that obviously is a strong communist emphasis. And the idea is to redistribute land from very few people who own a lot so that everyone can have something. Um, so that's obviously an idea from Karl Marx. And it's an idea we can see in the New Testament too, that everyone, not in terms of property, but that everyone has gifts and everyone should contribute. In communism, the idea is that there should be no private property. Um, and Mexico having strong affiliations culturally with the Catholic Church and then with communism takes elements of both of these traditions, I think, to develop a land claim system. And it says that if someone owns too much land, which is defined with different amounts of hectares, which is the metric version of acres, not they're not one to one, but it's the same type of measure. Um, 
depending on the type of land, if it requires irrigation, if it's used for ranching or crops, um, there's a different definition of too much. And then if there's other people who say, okay, this landowner owns too much land, we deserve to have it. This is how many people we are. This is how we want to have an ejido, which is um, communally run, but always in relationship to the state. There is a kind of parallel to a reservation that we would have here in the United States, but not exactly because it's petitioned by a community and in the 20th, 20th century, and it doesn't have to be indigenous or Aboriginal or native people. It can just be a group of rural people who might or might not affiliate with their indigenous background. This is another difference I would say between Mexico and Canada and the United States is that being indigenous in Mexico is, you think of yourself as indigenous if you still speak an indigenous language, whereas here that would not be the case. Um, it would be, that's your background, you're a member, you're like a registered member of a tribe, that kind of thing. So again, a little bit different context. And so these people are like, well, this person owns too much land. That's the case with the Mennonites. The Mennonites bought land at the same time as there was a land claims dispute. So someone wanted to make money while they knew that they were going to be expropriated. Very shady. And in the case of the Mormons, this group of people says, well, the colonizer who built a church said that in eight leagues in every direction from this church is our land. And so they're actually referring to a colonial document that precedes the revolution to make a post-revolutionary claim when Mormon people had bought this land in the 19th century. And this obviously leads to conflict, particularly in the different cases that I look at, everyone has a legal right to the land. Um, like there's a way you can justify everyone's purchase. I would say that the Mormons and Mennonites should not have been allowed to buy this land if there was a like, potential legal claim there, but um, that's what makes it so contentious. And what's very interesting, to me at least, um, is how the Mormons are viewed in the land claims documents. So there's really positive stereotyping, which I think is quite different than um, stereotyping of Mormons in the United States from the same time period. So this is like between kind of the 30s and the 50s. Um, and that's a time when I think people who might be watching this who would have been alive at that time or whose parents like, could very easily remember um, movies shown about Mormons or just kind of general cultural in the air ideas that are extremely negative. But here the Mormons are seen as um, people who will make the land prosper. They have orchards, they have all kinds of things that are um, helping the Mexican economy grow, and that's seen as important. There's also a land claims dispute with the LeBarons, um, who at the time of the dispute, I think were only involved in two different churches. And today, I cannot keep track of how many there are. Um, but some of you might remember that nine people were murdered two, about two years ago, a year and a half ago. It was before the pandemic. I don't know. Um, and also from that same place. And they were also seen really positively, even though this is a group that 
maintain polygamy well after the LDS church abandoned it. Um, and so obviously living outside of the Mexican social norms. And so there's these people that are being seen so positively while they're being able to live a pretty different kind of life than their neighbors. And that's what I found curious. Um, I think it's stereotyping that white people from Canada and the United States are better farmers than people from Mexico. Um, I think that's why, at least at that time, there was positive stereotyping in Mexico, whereas there's such negative stereotyping in the United States. Um, but the question of stereotyping is also something I kept thinking about in the rest of the book. And we were just talking about this before the recording started, how Mennonites are seen as like gangsters. Um, but then Mormons, particularly the LeBarons, who have um, been in the news in the last 100 years for a lot of reasons, not usually because of the land claims that I talk about in the book, um, are seen super positively. And yeah, so, that's so interesting I, I, uh, to think about because of course, not only are we talking about you know, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we also have uh, other groups that uh, claim the term Mormon, and that would include the LeBaron clan. And think about this, how in the United States, how negative of a stereotype we have of the LeBarons, and how in Mexico, they're viewed very sympathetically. And interestingly, one of the family members is even a high official in the PRI, which was one of the main political parties in there, and they've become peace activists, and they've integrated themselves into the society so well. Uh, just talk a little bit about that. Um, this is something that I found so interesting, was absolutely not anything I thought was going to be part of my research for this project. I knew that there were polygamous Mormons in Mexico. Um, there's a new book that came out by, I believe, Elisa Pulido um, about Margarito Bautista. It's in English. It's from Oxford University Press. And he was someone who joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and then was really attracted to polygamy in that tradition. Um, and so developed his own spin-off um, polygamous tradition that related to some groups in the United States, but wasn't exactly parallel. And then some members came like back into fellowship with LDS church and others remained apart. So there's like really fascinating stuff happening with polygamy in Mexico and the LeBarons are one of those branches. Um, and what happens in 2011, and this is right when um, there's increased violence in Mexico. And so the numbers for murders and kidnapping, particularly in the state of Chihuahua, um, where the two colonies started by LDS church members that still exist, um, Colonia Juarez and Colonia Diaz, Dublin, sorry. Um, that's the state where they're located, and it's also where the LeBarons live, and the nearby state of Sonora, um, the numbers completely spike. And one of the people who's kidnapped is a child. Um, he's not the only child who's kidnapped. But what's so unusual about this kid, Eric LeBaron, is that his family petition doesn't pay off the kidnappers. They don't hire a lawyer from Houston. They don't do any of the things that I think are completely normal human responses when someone you love is kidnapped in a country where you don't trust the government because they probably are involved. Um, his family petitions the governor and is like, you need to do something. The government of the state of Chihuahua does something 
and this guy's and this kid is released. That's what should happen in any situation of kidnapping. Um, but it's very, very unprecedented. Um, and then unfortunately, in retaliation, one of his brothers and one of his brothers in law were murdered. Um, and I think that's what drew so much public sympathy to this because everyone wants a government that heeds the people. So they were like, oh, wow, you did this. Like, this is what we all want for the loved ones that we've lost. Um, and that there's this retaliation, I think people took as a personal offense because it looked so promising and then it went so bad. Yeah. Um, and I read a book about this whole situation um, by a writer from the state of Chihuahua who had somehow come into contact with the LeBarons. I thought he might have joined their church, but or one of the many churches. Um, but we're friends on Facebook, and he didn't. So um, he just really liked these people. And I think that this like famous at a state level author getting attracted to this fairly unusual religious group um, and being willing to write about it and publish it shows is kind of a snippet of the general public sentiment about these people, that they're like perfect victims. Um, I think, I think because it's a kid that, that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, and, and of course you talk about your interactions as well with the, the Mennonites, uh, with the drug cartels as well, how they're viewed. And, and you actually talk about in the, the media portrayals of Mennonites, I find very fascinating because in our world we think of Mennonites slash Amish as being these, you know, peaceable people, and and in Mexican culture they're they're kind of viewed as like almost like the bad guys in some cases. And you even then talked about the television show The Bridge and how one of the Mennonite characters uh, uh, was in it, and uh, she's like a real bad guy or bad person in this particular one, right? So uh, talk a little bit about just the portrayal of Mennonites and the stereotypes that in their media. Yeah, um, this is the thing that I found kind of surprising because my whole life, um, if I've ever told anyone I'm Mennonite, they have a lot of questions, but they're normally like curiosity um, and interest not um not based on negative stereotyping and i know that in canada um mennonites from mexico bolivia belize who've returned to immigrate um to places like southern alberta or southwestern ontario do have a lot of negative stereotypes um and so there's some parallels with what these people are experiencing in mexico anyway so in this book, I talk about a TV show, The Heroes of the North, where there's this Mennonite guy who's selling cheese in a strip club. Mennonites are known for dairy production. Um, if you ever have a chance to go to Mexico, the state of Durango has the best cheese. And um, Mennonites are not supposed to be in a strip club. So this guy is like taking all the stereotypes and then he runs away from his family and joins a rock band. Um, and then there's the bridge where this woman is an accountant for the cartel. Um, Eleanor Nosh, who is supposedly Mennonite. Um, and it's like, what the heck is going on? Mennonites certainly are involved in the drug trade. Um, 
because many Mennonites in Mexico live in poverty and like many people in poverty sell drugs or smuggle drugs because there are literally no other economic options. Um, and I think we should all be concerned about that. But I'm gonna say that I don't know how, I have not asked anyone how common it is because also no one knows because no one keeps track exactly. They just keep track of, for example, arrests, um, not actual participation or dr the drug trade, everything is an estimate. Um, but also in Mexico, if I've ever told anyone I'm Mennonite, they have never said any of these things to me. They're, they're always like, oh, cheese. Yeah, we remember like when I was a kid, um, people would come to the city I'm from and sell cheese. Or if friends are from like this, the state of Chihuahua where there's a lot of Mennonites or the state of Durango where there's other Mennonites, they'd say, oh yeah, I grew up near them. They have a nice restaurant or like they had a good auto mechanic place even though they don't drive cars. Um, truly wild. Like that's the kind of experience I had. And so how that didn't quite line up with what was in popular culture was also curious. Um, I think that it's just sensational and to like um, on TV here, you know, people are obsessed with Amish Rumspringa. Not obsessed, but like if you're going to talk about Amish, that's going to be the first things that comes up for many people. And I think it's kind of like that, like people like the idea of like, oh, this perfect group of people who are certainly not perfect, they're people, no one is. Um, no matter how hard you're trying, that to see this group that seems so good and then people really go awry, I think that's the attraction there. Um, and it feels like a safe thing to make fun of, also because no one from these groups is likely to ever watch any of these TV shows. Um, but I remember when I was doing research and talking to people I said, well, you know, I'm trying to find out like what Mexicans really think of Mormons and Mennonites. And they're like, well, can you tell us in the, like what they actually think? Um, because we also want to know. And I think that the answer is not conclusive, um, that there are the negative stereotypes and there are the overly positive stereotypes as well. Um, but there's not in popular culture an example of people being people. Um, and I know that's one of the things you want to do with this series of book reviews is to build bridges and help people who are Mormon or who might be evangelical to learn about Mormons and yeah, to encounter people as humans. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, that's what this channel is all about. And, you know, I, <laughs> so I'm going through your book and <laughs> And we're talking a lot about Mennonites, but I think this is just a fascinating story. I'm going to just, there's pictures of corpses in your book. Now, just briefly tell me, why are there pictures of corpses in your book? That is a very good question. So this is one example of um, Mexican culture that does see Mennonite people as people. Um, since I finished writing the book, I found some really beautiful photographs of um, LDS congregations that also have not quite the same tone because they're when an important church leader is visiting. So everyone is, of course, dressed nicely and posing, but they're also, you know, people living their lives. Um, so this Mexican photographer 
somehow gets in touch with women in two colonies or groupings of, of Mennonite villages in Mexico, takes pictures of them. And one of the things she takes pictures of is someone being laid out after they've died and before they're buried. Um, so traditionally, the person who would do this might have been a midwife or like a bone setter, um, kind of like a traditional chiropractor. And the person is laid out in their living room and then will be buried um, as soon as possible, simply because of the heat, not because of a particular religious edict, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, and that's why in the picture that Stephen just showed, um, there's some like straw and ice underneath this person's body so that family who might be in Canada or the United States um, or elsewhere working can come and see the person before they die. But because Mennonites migrate frequently, um, they take pictures of these people after they've died to share with family. Um, this is a tradition that to the best of my knowledge began in 19th century Britain um, and is certainly not unique to Mennonites, but it's something that we have pictures of my deceased relatives and none of us are plain dressing like members of the old colony Mennonite church. Um, but we have like not so many generations different, or at least on my dad's side, many generations on my mom's. Um, but it's the idea of wanting to preserve something about this person um, for people who couldn't be there. And also um, you mentioned this also before we were recording. So Mennonites have an idea of not making graven images and the people who are Amish or old order you will notice that their clothes often don't even have patterns um, and they won't have pictures in their houses. Their um, art is like quilting, so it's not like representational artwork um, that is trying to look like a person, it's a pattern. And then why would people who have such beliefs take a picture? That's something that also remains an unanswered question, but you had suggested you know, the person has died already. And so there could be some theological significance to that. Um, totally possible. There's not a lot written about um, the theology of old order groups, but I think it does make sense. Um, their belief is like, well, we hope this person and all of our community will be in heaven. We know that's where they go after they die. And they're no longer here. And so if you have that mindset, then it's a little bit easier to understand why they might have taken a picture. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting avenue to explore. You know, so at the at the conclusion of your book, you you know, because this this is interesting how you know there isn't a whole lot of interaction between Mormons and Mennonites, even though they may not even be that far from each other. And maybe the Mormons seem to be very interested in asking questions about Mennonites and stuff like that. But you end in the story of this couple from Colonia Juarez. And they had a child who was disabled and started a school for disabled children. And that led to an interaction with some Mennonites. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, that was by far one of the coolest things um, that happened while I was spending time um, with the Cluffs in Colonia Juarez. And, and then they introduced me to a whole bunch of their friends. And one of these couples 
Um, so these are all older folks who'd been members of the church forever. And I just thought that my host went to the temple a lot. It turns out that their calling was the temple and that's why they went there all the time. Um, but these people were all doing or had done really significant um, lay roles in the church. And so knew all kinds of people, knew all kinds, tons about Mormonism. And then one of these couples was really, really good friends with a Mennonite family, which totally blew my mind um, because my hosts were super curious about Mennonites. And I had spent a day with some distant relatives slash family friends. Um, and like they'd gotten to just say hello, but there wasn't really a lot of languages in common between the four people, um, my relatives and my Mormon hosts. So um, I think that's really the main barrier is that everyone kind of speaks, the men all kind of speak Spanish and a lot of um, Mormon women who have roots in Utah would speak English primarily at home and Mennonite women will speak low German. So there's not a lot of chances to just meet and do things together. But this one family had found a way, which was really beautiful, um, through a child that they had, I believe, adopted, um, that Mormon couple. And then the Mennonite family also had a child um, with a disability and had participated in their programs. Um, and they had really become family. Um, the Mormon couple told me that when they went to stay with their Mennonite friends, like they stayed in the parents' bedroom. So the nicest bedroom in the house, um, which is what you would do for grandparents or very special visitors. And so they were like, so clearly a huge honor and that they were able to be welcomed in this way, I think is such a truly unprecedented. Um, and able to be kind of a bridge between their communities in that way. The family, the Mennonite family that had a child with a disability was also a member of a church where they go to school to the equivalent of grade 10 and like learn Spanish in their schools. So there was also a little bit more openness on the part of people in that tradition, you know, to take it to knowing that even like a program could exist for their kid who has a disability and then taking them there because they would drive. Um, and that kind of thing, but still such a really neat exchange that I was able to see. Um, and to think about, yeah, opportunities like that that exist um, and that we can keep kind of finding ways to do things like that. Yeah, that, that's, that was, I love the way you ended the story there. And again, the name of the book is Liminal Sovereignty, Mennonites and Mormons in Mexican Culture. Uh, there's a lot that we didn't cover. Did you know there was eugenics programs uh, in Mexico? I didn't know that. And uh, so she talks about that. Um, and we did cover the Mennonites pretty good in this this particular episode, which I'm, I'm actually glad that we did. Um, I also want to compliment you when I first, okay, so I was uh, back in my place in Bradenton. And uh, usually when I'm back in Bradenton, my mom loves to uh, make me home-cooked meals and I look forward to it but my mom was out of town so I thought I'm sick of my cooking and I'm currently in rural Florida and I have no access to restaurants so I so I, what I would do is I'd go to a, a restaurant that has a bar and order a Coke Zero and have my meal and then start reading my books I figured rather than me spending my time cooking I'm gonna you know get some reading done I just remember reading the introduction and it hit me right away 
this is an academic book, but I felt like I, I heard your voice very clearly. I felt like I got to know you through uh, your writing almost immediately. And I just want to compliment you on that. Oh, thank you. And uh, so I really enjoyed this book. I'm going to leave a, a link in the description. So if you'd like to purchase this book, uh, it will be uh, available. It's, a, it's an interesting book. And of course, this book, is, this series is for book lovers. And, uh, you know, I think it's important that we, uh, and academics and scholars and everybody else who subscribes to this channel, um, this is a book that you need to add to your collection. So uh, I want, and then in the fall, I will probably, I'll be doing season two. So I'll give it a nice little book review as well. So we'll, we'll have it, we'll have that real revisit this topic again. Um, Rebecca, thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. I'm so oh. glad that we met at MHA and hopefully we'll be able to both attend that in the future. Oh yeah. Well, I'll see you next year for sure. So I just want to remind my subscribers to uh, like and subscribe, hit the notification button so you'll know when you'll be getting a new uh, episode and uh, you have yourself a wonderful, wonderful day. All right, you too.